This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 75. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramayasha. And today we have a very special episode because if you remember last week, we asked our listeners, hey, if you're attending the Naoki Urasawa exhibition in Los Angeles, hit us up and tell us about your experiences. And guess what? Someone has done just that. In fact, they were so on the ball with this that they contacted us before we even put up that podcast. And so later on the show, we're going to have Aiden, known on Twitter as Cowboy B-Boy, on the show to talk about the Urasawa exhibition, what it was like to attend there, see all of Urasawa's fantastic artwork, and attend a live Q&A presentation with Urasawa himself, seeing Urasawa in person, getting a signing from him, all sorts of really exciting, cool stuff. We got all that for you later in the show, but first we got some news to talk about and some big stories too. And starting off, let's talk about the Diamond Top 100 Manga for 2018. That's right, Diamond's list of the Top 100 Best-Selling Manga of 2018 is up. These are the best-selling individual graphic novels sold at comic book specialty shops back in 2018. And guess which publisher dominated the Top 10? Wiz Media, of course, with... My Hero Academia, One Punch Man, Dragon Ball Super, all sorts of big series, big franchises. They dominated the top 10. And guess which one was number one? The highest selling manga graphic novel in comic book shops last year? Guess what it was? My Hero Academia, Volume 1, right there, ranked number one. And then we've also got Volume 2 of My Hero Academia at number 3. We've got the first volume of My Hero Academia, Vigilantes, at number 8. And if you look down the list of this top 100, you will see pretty much every volume of My Hero Academia is here. They have sold a plenty... And it is dominating the sales. But also a high seller is One Punch Man. Volume 1 comes in at number 2 here. Dragon Ball Super Volume 1 comes in at number 4. We've got Tokyo Ghoul number 1 at number 5. Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. The third volume of that series comes in at number 6. One Punch Man Volume 13 comes in at number 7. Dragon Ball Super Volume 3 comes in at number 9. And Ruby, the standalone graphic novel by Shiro Miwa. That comes in at number 10, rounding off the top. 10 there. So Wiz Media had quite a strong showing. But their other publishers also had some successes for sure. DC had their Batman and the Justice League manga. The first one of that by Shiro Teshirogi was their top-selling manga at number 18. Uh, Dark Horse's best-selling title was Berserk Volume 1 at number 20. And of course, Kadanja's bestseller was Attack and Titan Volume 1, which was ranked at number 37 for the year. Mm, wow pretty low on that list um but that, that i mean that's not to say it didn't do well though when you consider the sheer amount of graphic novels available in north america to be in the top 100 is still quite an impressive feat um i appreciate that the first volume of mob cycle 100 from dark horse came in at 43 that that seems to be doing pretty well all things considered Mm-hmm. Also very cool to see Junji Ito's latest book, Shiver, here on the list at number 21. And Frankenstein is also here at number 27. Junji Ito continues to be a great seller. We, I see Uzumaki here at number 31. So, 
very popular. Interesting that Assassination Classroom Volume 1 comes in at number 52. Mm-hmm. Assassination Classroom is quite popular, which I am glad to see. Also seeing Pokemon Sun and Moon Volume 1 at number 49. Also really great. Seller Moon, the new Eternal Edition. That's here at number 40, which is very nice. Uh, the Yamcha manga, reincarnated as Yamcha. That's there at number 47. So a lot of interesting titles making a good showing on this list uh my solo exchange diary from uh volume one in particular from seven seas came in at number 81 now that is something i'm quite happy to see that it's in the top 100 and seems to be one of seven seas best selling titles of last year so very very good to see that i mean there's not really much else i could like add up add on about this list other than i mean I just kind of assumed that every volume of My Hero Academia available would be on here, and uh, I would not be surprised about that. So, you know, um, the, this this list is definitely a good metric of, like, what the most popular manga franchises are in North America right now. Most certainly. And, of course, MHA and One Punch Man are the big two. We have one piece of serialization news to talk about now and that's that Osamu Tezuka's Phoenix is getting a sequel in novel form coming in April. This news is brought to us by the Ashahi Shimbun that uh, has revealed that Naoki Prize winning author Kasuki Sakuraba of Gosik and Fuse members of Huntress fame is writing a Phoenix novel called Phoenix ground which is going to begin serialization in april in the newspaper's b excerpt on saturdays it's going to feature illustrations by Seitaro kuroda this is going to be based on manuscripts that uh, tesca had outlined but had never gotten to finish before he sadly passed away in the mid 80s so this novel is going to be continuing the story of phoenix that tesca left unfinished which is quite exciting and hopefully we might see this brought over at some point to North American audiences. Because definitely I want to see more of what Tesca had intended to explore in the Phoenix series. Hmm, that, that is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Now to move on to one piece of licensing news. We have news that Wiz has licensed the latest Pokemon film, Pokemon The Power of Us, for home video release on Blu-ray disc and Blu-ray. And in addition, they've also acquired the rights to the manga version, Pokemon The Movie The Power of Us, Zeraora, and will publish that this summer. One would think that they should time the release of these manga, publish the publishing these manga to when the movie comes out. I definitely know that some people were talking about, you know, why does Riz take so long to release the manga versions of these movies? But I think that in this case, it's at least coming out at least around the same time, or at least just a few months after the Blu-ray release of Power of Us. So it's not like the year-long wait after theatrical screening that the Pokemon I Choose You manga had, where that movie came out in U.S. theaters in November of 2017 and then like a year later it took Wiz to get the manga version out so much faster turnaround with the power of us one now we have some really exciting news and that rumiko takahashi has won yet another award she has won the anglame grand prix award which honors the recipient's lifetime body of work she was one three finalists for this award at the 46th anglame international comics festival and she has won it, 
And this Lifetime Achievement Award also means that she gets to be the marshal of the 2020 event. So there will be a, probably a Rumiko Takahashi exhibit next year. This is very cool. The, the last manga author to win the Grand Prix was Katsuhiro Atomo in 2015. So very, very cool news for Takahashi. And I might just have to go to the Angry Lane Festival next year if they're going to have a Takahashi exhibit in honor of her. Hmm, that sounds pretty neat. But speaking of awards, Mirai has been nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. This coming after it's been nominated for several other awards. And hopefully, it, uh, well, let's face it, uh, Mirai <laughs> will probably not win the 91st Academy Awards. Probably go to one of Disney's entries, even though they are the least deserving. You know, I will be happy if either Spider-Man or Mariah win. You know, I'm so I'm placing my bets on Spider-Man. You know, that won the Golden Globe, so hopefully maybe it'll, it can win the Best Picture, the Best Animated Feature Oscar. Um, I don't know, like, uh, just, just kind of looking at the uh, the nominees so far, like, I feel like... I mean, because we, we have both The Incredibles 2 and Ralph Breaks the Internet, so Disney technically has two films... As they always, they always do. Did they have two films nominated last year? I mean, pretty much whenever there's a Disney and there's a Pixar film in the same year, they both managed to be nominated for Best Animated Feature. I don't remember last year if they had it, but like generally... I was only asking because I'm pretty sure Coco was the only Disney thing that was nominated last year. Last year, probably, because I, I don't... Off the top of my head, I don't remember any other Disney film nominated last year in that category. But, like, it's not a surprise to see both a Disney and a Pixar film for Best Animated Feature in nominations. All I'm going to say is I am I feel like Ralph Breaks the Internet is probably going to win it just because it's Disney. What? Oh my uh, because it's Disney. Ralph, okay, you know, <laughs> of those two Disney films, give it to Incredibles too. Ralph Breaks the Internet is, like... Look, I, I'll say that I enjoy all these films nominated to a certain extent, but Ralph Breaks the Internet is just, like, such blatant pandering and corporate consumerism. It's like the... It's only... It only has marginally more heart than the Emoji movie, you know? There's, it's, there's fun stuff to be had, but it is just so creatively bank... I mean, I won't say that. I just... Like, there's... It's creative, but that creativity is used to sell products in such a blatant way that annoys me. See, I was I was going to ask because, like, I personally, I I love the first Wreck-It Ralph. It's actually probably one of my favorite movies. Just mm -hmm. because, just because, like when I when I first saw it in theaters, I was expecting nothing from that movie. Like I was just kind of, I just assumed, you know, from the marketing at the time that like it was just going to be the celebration of, you know, look at all these different video game characters that you know. But like the movie turned out to be more than that, and I got more out of the first Wreck-It Ralph than I thought I did, or than I thought I would. So I really ended up enjoying the first one. So like. You know, when I first saw that there was going to be a sequel to the movie, I was like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm open to it. But then, like, uh, the more that I found out about, you know, Ralph Breaks the Internet and what it was going to be about, like, I was kind of turned off by it. I don't even, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Because I just, I just haven't, I just didn't have any interest in seeing it in theaters. So, like, does it really add anything to 
to to like the first movie at all, or is this something like I could skip? You don't need to watch it at all. Like they have to like devolve Ralph's character in order to make this movie work. He has to be stupid and selfish in really mm. obnoxious ways. That that's really unfortunate. Like the story they're trying to go for is, oh, this is a toxic codependent relationship Ralph has with Vanellope. It's very obnoxious. And obviously Ralph learns his lesson, whatever, but it doesn't make up for the fact that he's just insufferable throughout so much of this movie. And then more than that, of course, is like, oh my god, uh, so much product placement. Oh wow, Disney is so great. Look at all the Disney princesses. You love the Disney princesses. Uh, they got a bunch of scenes in the movie. And don't get me wrong, you know, I would watch a Disney princesses movie. I, w- I would watch and enjoy that a lot. But Yeah, like, see, that's that's my thing too, is like, they, that was that was a huge part of their marketing for this movie. Why didn't they just make a Disney princess movie? You know what I mean? Honestly, this feels like just... Uh, testing the pilots to see, oh, hey, you, would would people want a Disney Princesses movie? Let's put them in this film and uh, see, hey, uh, how much business is going to get? So I'm, I have to imagine that they'll make one now. But, you know, and I, I, mean, I would enjoy that. Again, like, I would enjoy that, but, like, so much of this movie is, like, feels very pandering to, in a lot of ways. Uh, there is creativity in this movie. Like, there are a lot of creative ways they visualize the internet and stuff. There is ultimately a good message, but it's just not enjoyable. And it just feels so derivative and so blatantly commercialized. It sounds like it feels really forced. Yeah, it is pretty much forced. I mean, again, they have to digress Ralph's character and make him forget all the lessons he learned in the previous movie in order to make this movie work. Yeah, that that's upsetting. Cause, Honestly, like, yeah. like they, they, if they want to continue making stories with these characters, make the next film about Vanellope because she's more interesting. She's the one who has like actual growth that she can do. You know, just make a Sugar Rush movie or uh, the Deck Race movie. She's not in that game or whatever, and and just forget about Ralph. Like this, I don't you. Because in this movie, like, he, he was, like, my my least favorite part about it by a large margin. Anyway, uh, also, Ralph Breaks the Internet is, like, easily, of these contenders, like, the least deserving, in my opinion. Just in factoring all sorts of other merits and all that, but, you know. Yeah, I, I just I, I just want to put out there, I, I only, I'm, th- that that is my cynical answer because it is a Disney film. But also, Incredibles 2 is on there, so, like, I feel like out of the four it's probably the one that would win but like personally i'm rooting for spider-verse because holy shit that is such a good movie (laughs) spider-verse is a is like an achievement in filmmaking spider-verse is like innovative in just incredible ways like that to me is the most deserving uh even though i really like mariah a lot i was also gonna say it's probably the best spider-man movie we've had in a long time honestly yeah uh just in terms of the character but uh but no yeah i mean i i feel bad because i have i didn't get a chance to see mirai in theaters but i'm i'm like i'll take your word for it when you say that it's it's really good and i'm sure it's very deserving of this of this award so yeah like of the best pick a best animated uh, feature nominees which ones have you seen just spider-verse and incredibles 2 um yeah pretty much i mean i meant to see isle of dogs but like i heard so much like in my circles, at least, that film got a lot of, like, mixed reactions, so I, w- I was, I honestly wasn't sure if, like, 
if it'd be worth seeing, but like I wouldn't mind checking it out. I definitely have mixed feelings towards that film as well, but I do think the filmmaking of that film is really good. So even if I have problems with certain aspects of how it handles culture and uh, depiction of Japanese people and all that. Yeah, I, re- I remember you talking about that at one point. But I mean, I also love stop motion animation, so like, I feel like I feel like I need to sit down with it at some point. Mm-hmm. But no, I, 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 I don't know. Like, I want to hold out hope, but at the, but at the same time, at this point, you know, I'm just not invested in the Oscar. I'm not invested in too many award things at this point because it's like, you know, the the things that do deserve. You know, an award don't ever get an award, at least in, in my opinion, anyway. So, eh, it depends. I mean, there, maybe... especially with the Oscars, I should say, as far as like animated movies go. Well, yeah, I mean, especially with best anime feature, it's very much, hey, what are the studios with the most clout? Uh, each one gets like one film representation. It's up for Disney, which if they have like two films that are eligible they'll get two and also like the people who judge these movies don't even like watch all of them like some just outright ignore them which i think is kind of an outrage <laughs> honestly um i don't know like i'm i'm glad coco won last year because like i really do think out of the nominees from that year like i that one was easily the most deserving even no, if- loving winston was the most deserving you didn't watch loving vincent if you had listened to our podcast about it we Lord <laughs> and i were like loving vincent was the best film of the goddamn year not just but then we felt best film it deserved the oscar god damn it and but coco is a great film too don't get me wrong i like coco but loving vincent Come on, that was an accomplishment. Loving Vincent is a is is an accomplishment. I just wish I was a little more interested in the story was all. But that is just me and my mm-hmm. and and my dumb opinion. Don't listen to me. I don't okay. know anything about movies. <laughs> 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 oh, but anyway, um, we should we should just move on to the next piece of news. <laughs> yeah, uh, you you'll definitely hear more heated conversations about the Oscars uh, when We Lord and I inevitably record this year's oscars podcast in a couple weeks Uh, we'll Uh, have strong words for sure about certain things i i know uh but anyway so uh crunchyroll expo is coming up and a a cool new guest they got for uh this next crunchyroll expo is none other than horror manga artist junji ito which i think is a really awesome get um you know if you happen to be in the uh, in in California from August thirtieth to the first of September, you should really go to the Crunchyroll Expo and go see him. Pr- pr- pretty much, like it seems like just every year, um, you know, Junji Ito's works just become more and more popular. So, like, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people who want to see him. I might have to head out the Crunchyroll Expo just to see Ito. I'll have to plan out my schedule. We'll have to see. But it's really cool to see that he'll be attending a con in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely go to Crunchyroll Expo if you can. Uh, but uh, moving on from that, um, we have just um, an, another addition to Jump Force to kind of briefly mention here. Uh, one that I, I didn't really expect personally, and that is uh, Die from uh, Dragon Quest Die's Adventure. Which, um, see, some sometimes... And we we haven't really been t- uh, talking about Jump Force on the podcast because essentially it usually amounts to 
man, why didn't they add more of these characters? Or, man, more Naruto characters again? Like, it, <laughs> I mean, it, admittedly, the, the conversation on jump about Jump Force on the podcast hasn't been very varied, but, like, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about this edition because, one, I mean, I've never read The Adventures of Dai, but, like, it's something I really want to get to because it looks, it looks really cool, even though, you know, I don't have a lot of prior experience with the Dragon Quest franchise, but, like... This is one of those choices where, like, you know, because I, I think we all just kind of assumed, like, oh, they're basically picking characters from uh, franchises that are popular in the West. But also, like, you know, I, I guess really thinking about it when you have, you know, representation of stuff like, you know, um, you know, Saint Seiya and stuff. I'm I'm sure they're also just picking franchises that are not popular just, like, in, in the West, but I'm sure, like, just outside of Japan in general. Internationally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it's still a pretty like interesting pick. Like, I was never expecting this character in particular to to make it onto the roster for this game. I mean, it's it's an interesting pick, that's for sure. Yeah, I think it's really nice to see such uh, an unusual pick join the roster. You know, we have characters from established franchises that everyone knows, and now we have Die from Dragon Quest. And Dragon Quest, you know, is a very recognizable franchise, but it's just nice to see a character that you wouldn't expect in the roster, you know? I appreciate that because all the announcements so far has been like characters, yeah, I'd figure this, these people would be in here. Oh, more characters from One Piece and Naruto and Dragon Ball? Uh, okay, I guess. I mean, I would like characters from other series, but, you know. But, yeah, so it's nice to see some more diverse choices, uh, more representation of different series in this game. Yeah. Um, hopefully they're not done uh, announcing characters because, I mean, if they're going to keep picking characters from, I guess, this era of Jump, like, I, I'd like to see who else they have in mind. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more series they could represent, and uh, I'm hoping for just more different characters in general. Let's Let's hope that, like, for the series they already have reps for, there won't be any new additions coming, but they'll ha- introduce reps for other series now. Well, our final piece of news is another top 10 manga fans would like to see animated list. This was a recent Goo poll ran in December of 2018 in which 3,240 fans weighed in on which manga they would like to see get anime adaptations. This survey ran from December 1st to December 15th, 2018. And so now all the results have been compiled. And so here are the top 10. Coming in at number 10 is Moriarty the Patriot by Ryusuke Takeuchi and Hikaru Miyoshi, based on the characters by Sir Arthur Korn and Doyle. And it seems to be a Sherlock Holmes manga about Moriarty. Very mm. interesting. I feel like... I, uh, I feel... And then... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I feel like I, I recognize this manga. For some reason, I thought this already had an anime. I'm not sure... I'm not sure why I thought that. I probably confused it for something else. But um, no, yeah, just I was just going to say this title seems sort of familiar somehow. I'm not sure. I also have that vague sense of familiarity, but I can't place where I've heard of it before. Yes, yeah, just weird. Interesting. At number nine, we have Petals of Reincarnation by Mikihisa Konoichi. And not too sure about what this series is about, but it looks like it might be quite violent. It, it it feels like it's probably like an action thriller kind of series. 
like for for some reason I look at the cover for this and I'm I'm thinking of like happiness almost like it invokes that same sense of like dread almost. At number eight, we have Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Kui. And I think that's one that uh, I'm sure a lot of people are hoping for an anime adaptation for one of these days, myself included. Oh, man, I'm 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 sure Casey would just die as soon as he hears that it's that, that it got an anime. <laughs> well, I'm a, I don't know. It's a double edged sword. I mean, everyone wanted that Golden Kamui anime and it wasn't quite as exciting when it came out as it could have been. Mm, I still see people who, like, really enjoy it, though. Yeah, but mostly I see people go, wow, the story is really good. I'm going to read the manga because the manga is better in how it executes it. I mean, hey, uh, most anime exists to be a marketing tool for their manga anyway, so. And in that regard, it was quite successful, I think. And then at number seven, we have Komi Can't Communicate by Tomihito Oda. And I know that Bomber would be very happy if this finally got animated. I feel like I feel like it has to get an anime, like, soon at some point. Like, I feel like there's enough demand to where I could see this happening, like, within the year, maybe. I would be surprised if somebody doesn't jump on the chance to get this greenlit as an anime, because... I, it's it has a lot of buzz. The manga is coming out over here in the West this summer, so it should be in a prime position to get more exposures through anime. So here's hoping it does. At number six, Yotsuba by Kiyohiko Azuma, and now this is a series that will probably never get animated because Azuma is sticking to his guns and saying, "Nope, this is not going to work as animation." A very much a Bill Watterson of Calvin Hot's fame kind of approach. And perspective on the series, and I respect that a lot. Even though I'm sh- animated Yotsubub would be quite adorable. Mm-hmm. At number five, we have Straighten Up by Takuma Yokota. I remember we talked about one of these uh, lists of manga fans want animated a long time ago, and Straighten Up was also on this list, but that was closer to back when the series ended, and now still... Like, a long time out from when Straight It Up has ended, we're seeing it here at number five on this list of works that fans want animated. So there's still quite a devoted cult following to Straight It Up in Japan, it seems. Which I'm quite happy to see as a fan of Yokota's work. At number four, we have Mobile Suit Crossbone Gundam by Yoshiyuki Tomino and Yuji Hasegawa. This is the Gundam series that everyone wants animated and everyone's confused why Sunrise hasn't animated it. But maybe one of these days they'll finally relent and give the fans what they want. As someone who's very not knowledgeable about Gundam, um, this one looks incredibly badass, and I would watch it. It is the pirate Gundam. Come on. <laughs> Wait, there are pirate Gundam? No, no, no. Hold on. Stop. There are pirate Gundams? Why has anyone told me this? Well, in this series, it is. You can clearly see the skull and crossbones on the Gundam, Colton. It is the pirate Gundam. Oh well, I didn't know it was a pirate gun. I just thought it. I just <laughs> thought it meant like this Gundam was badass or this Gundam is deadly or something. I didn't know it was a pirate Gundam. Wow, I'm sorry. I need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would watch that. As would I. At number three, we have Oromichi Onisan by Gaku Kuze. This one I also am not too familiar with. I feel like I recognize the title of this. Um, if I remember correctly, I think 
I feel like this manga had a had a bit where like the, the main character talked about like manga piracy. Yes, now that's where I remember us hearing a story about that, uh, covering that on the show a long time ago. Uh, apparently, the manga story centers on a 31-year-old man who has two sides to his personality. He appears as a young man in charge of physical exercises on the educational program Maman to the Getter. And although he has a fresh and upbeat demeanor on the show, he's actually a bit emotionally unstable. And the manga reveals the less than sunny parts of his life for young adults. So it sounds like a very interesting premise about a guy who puts on a very pleasant, upbeat face on his television show, but in the background, you know, we see how he really lives his life. Hmm. Yeah, that 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 sounds really interesting. Actually, I'd I'd read it. Mm-hmm. At number two, we have Bachi Bachi by Takehiro Sato, which looks kind of like a Yakuza kind of series, but I will look up to see what it's actually about. Yeah, I, I was I was trying to find it on my own too. I can't really find I can't really find much about it. Oh, it's actually a soccer manga. It's a no. This looks like a completely different series. Yeah, I, I that was the first thing I found too. I don't I don't think it's the same thing. Um, oh, I think it's a oh, it's a sumo series. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, I found it. Okay. Hmm. Well, it seems like there is a demand for sumo stories after all. Even if Hinomaru Sumo is sadly not very successful right now in terms of its anime adaptation. Selling very poorly. Apparently the first volume of the Hinomaru Sumo anime had the second lowest BD sales in history. So, Oh, wow. Uh, very, very sad. But at number one is Detective Conan Zero's Tea Time by Takahiro Arai. Which... You know, I am not surprised at all because Amuro is an incredibly popular character. Zero's Tea Time, I'm sure, is incredibly popular because it's about him. And I am surprised that they have not decided to animate this already. You know, they should move Conan into like a split core show or two core show and then have the rest of the year be Zero's Tea Time. I'm sure that would please fans aplenty. Man, yeah, Amuro is definitely a really popular character. Um, yeah, I mean, the latest Detective Conan film, uh, Zero's Tea Time, is a big hit, apparently, internationally. It's, I think it's the first Conan film to break 100 million at the box office in its lifetime, and it's still playing in international markets, so I'm sure we will see more of Amuro for years to come. Oh, yeah, he's going to keep Detective Conan running another 20 years, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Even when Conan ends there, the Zero's Tea Time will not end. It will continue on. The, the series will just be about Amuro. See, you joke, but, like, I could I could see that happening. I, yeah, I totally see that happening. Uh, huh. But that does it for the news. And so now we will get into our main event, discussing the Nahoki Hurasawa exhibition in Los Angeles with our friend Aiden. Coming up at you right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Manga Mavericks. Remember last week when we asked people, hey, if you went to the Naoki Urasawa exhibit in Los Angeles, tell us your experiences at the exhibit. We'd like to hear them. And guess what? We have someone who reached out to us to talk about their experiences at the Naoki Urasawa exhibit in Los Angeles. We have on with us Aiden, known on Twitter as Cowboy B-Boy, on to talk about 
about his experience on the opening day of the Art of Nooki Urasawa exhibit at Japan House Los Angeles to talk about all the fun stuff he did there and what it was like to see Naoki Urasawa present in person. Thanks for coming aboard, Aiden. Hello. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this. Uh, like, Naoki Urasawa is my favorite manga artist of all time, so the event was a surreal opportunity, and it was just just incredible, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about it. Can I? I just want to put out there for the record, right, that um, Aiden actually reached out to us uh, before we put up that particular episode. So, I know. like, he could read our minds. <laughs> he was able to listen to an episode that hadn't even been released yet. It it did take me a second because I think I was like halfway through editing that episode when Aiden uh, messaged us, and I was just I I really had to kind of take a moment to be like, did did I put that episode up? <laughs> must have some weird clairvoyant powers like friend or johan in which he can like somehow know what you're thinking (laughs) i mean probably um so i guess even before we talk about the exhibit um we we could probably talk a little bit about like kind of our experiences with urasawa a little bit just as far as like uh i guess what our background is with his works in particular and i i hate to say that i've only ever read um I've only ever read like Pluto in full. I've uh, wow. Urasawa, yeah, Urasawa <laughs> is somebody that I've kind of slept on, unfortunately. But I've seen enough of his works that I know that I love them. Um, like I said just now, I like I've read Pluto all in full. I read that back when I was in high school, and I really loved it. Even as someone who had never really read like the original Astro Boy, I really got something out of it. Um, I've never read the monster manga, but I- I've seen. I've seen a good portion of the anime back when it was on sci-fi or whatever, uh, back when sci-fi actually aired anime. Um, but yeah, no, Urasawa is definitely somebody that like I really want to read, uh, where I want to read more of his works, and I, I definitely plan on fixing that at some point. Um, what, what, what about you, Lum? Well, I am a big fan of Urasawa. I've read most of his works. At least, I've read all of his works that have been translated into English officially, as well as a few others that have not. I first got into Urasawa's works thanks to my friends over at the Animation Revelation forums, who are big fans of his, Monster in particular, and their discussion of Urasawa's works intrigued me and made me want to seek them out. And so I started with the monster anime back when that was on Hulu. I binged that in a week because it was so engrossing that immediately started reading on his manga like 20th Century Boys and the monster manga and Pluto and I've read a lot. I've read also Yawara and a lot of Yawara. Not like all of it that I think was scanlated. I've read all of Billy Bat and that was amazing. I talked about Billy Bat on the show uh, when the year it ended, I think I had his best manga ending of 2016. I think I I mentioned it on that podcast. I think So, so. Yeah. Yeah. Billy Bat was an amazing one, but yeah, I've, I really enjoy Urasawa's work and I, I, do you think he's one of the best storytellers in manga right now? Because his thrillers are just so engrossing and you his mysteries are incredible page turners that just keep you in 
suspense from beginning to end. And Billy Bat, now that was a crazy ride where you could not predict where that thing was going, but it came together so beautifully. And I'm looking forward to reading his next works whenever they're hopefully brought over into English. Oh man, it makes me so so glad to hear how much you enjoyed the ending of Billy Bat, because I know that that's one that has been controversial among fans, whether or not they, they appreciate it. And it's it's sad to hear that, because I think that it is, just, just like you, I think it's one of the best endings I've read in a manga ever. I agree. I think it was just so perfectly in tune with the themes of the series. Exactly. It's it's a it's an ending that is more about the themes and the message of the manga rather than the individual events or the the characters. Mhm. Most definitely. I think Urasawa is really great at exploring theme to its fullest extent in his stories. And I think that all of his stories culminate in like Coming to a culmination of the ideas he's exploring in a very uh, articulate and thoughtful way. Yeah, but uh, Aiden, I guess, uh, wh where did it all start with you? So the first of Urusawa's series that I actually read was Billy Bat a handful of years ago. I read it not long after it had been completed, just because I heard people talking about it. And I had become interested in his work partially just because I'd seen it for years around, particularly images of friend or or johan as, as villains that i'd heard people say that they really liked and i had come up with the idea of cosplaying friend to a convention because it is an easy costume it is a suit and a tie yeah. <laughs> and a mask so i i found a full set of the 20th century boys manga on ebay and ordered that and it took quite a while to ship so in the meantime i read all of billy bat <laughs> and then then immediately after that read 20th Century Boys and 21st Century Boys, the, the conclusion of it. And over the course of the next few years or so, uh, collected Monster and Master Keaton and read those, as well as uh, Pluto and other things. I've, I've read some of his other works that were scams, such as Yawara, what, like what exists of it, since it's a terribly long series that never was never was completed. It's his longest. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous that his longest series was his first, like, major serialization. I mean... That and Pineapple Army were nearly concurrent, but, but yeah, still. And a much different kind of story than what he's known for now. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, Pineapple Army, actually, I did get the the single graphic novel that Viz released in 1990 of it. Where nice. they, they put out ten chapters of Pineapple Army as individual comic books that weren't necessarily even the first ten chapters of the manga. They were just ten chapters from the first, like, twenty or so and put them together in a, a graphic novel that was flipped back so that it would write, read in the opposite direction, had all of the sound effects redrawn, and all of the lettering was done by hand. I think it was one of the very first graphic novels that Viz Media actually even put out. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but the, just from there, over the the past two and a half years or so since I started reading his works, they've just grown on me more and more, and I've read a number of them a few different times, like, Billy Bat sadly still is not licensed in America, and I think that's uh, just an absolute shame, but I was able to purchase the entire series in Spanish and import it from Spain, since I can read Spanish, so it was a, a great way to both improve my, my language skills and own my favorite manga series. Yeah, so there's just, there's a whole lot to love about his, his writing, as far as the the characters, the the stories, and the, the settings, just Every, everything about them is wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
Oh boy, I really need to get on more Urasawa. Um, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, quite 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 the blemish on my manga fandom. Uh, so I guess um, I guess we could just move on to talking about the exhibit, and um, I guess uh, we we don't really have any like particular talking points. At least I don't have any anyway. Um, I figured we could just kind of talk about your experience with uh, you know getting ready and actually getting to the venue and experiencing it and whatnot so just 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 kind of, just kind of run through run through your experience with us what was it what was it like getting ready and actually like uh being a part of the exhibit yeah so i had known that he was going to have his exhibition in los angeles this year from january 23rd to i think march like march 20 something this year 28th okay yeah i i knew that that was happening and i was actually thinking about heading out to Los Angeles for the exhibit on like late in March when I have spring break for my college classes. And then I was at work and got a Discord message from a friend who and they said, Hey, did you see that Urasawa himself is actually going to be at the exhibit in January, like when it opens? And I immediately thought, Oh, oh shit, I guess I'm gonna have to go to Los Angeles in a week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that I've never done before, never traveled to California, never done that. I'm from the Midwest, and it just, it it was impulsive, but it was the kind of thing where he is my favorite artist. Not just, like, my favorite mangaka or my favorite writer, he's just my favorite artist ever. And I never expected to have an opportunity to be able to actually see him speak, let alone meet him. So I, I didn't want to pass it up, so... Just got together planning that. My father also went on the trip with me. He doesn't have any particular knowledge of, of Urusawa beforehand, but he said that he just would prefer to not have me go alone on a trip like that. But it was great having him along as well. So, mm -hmm. Did he attend the exhibit with you? Yeah. Oh, what did he think of the art? He The, the art in the exhibit, was he, he didn't have a, an, a ton to say, but after the uh, the interview that was held that night with him, he came away with a very deep appreciation for Urasawa's art, and he was a person in his work ethic. And it was just, it really made me feel great to see, uh, like, my, my dad just learn and share this person that I love so much. Well, I, I, I know the feeling, uh, I've talked about it on the podcast before, how, like, um, when, when, when I started watching Monster on Sci-Fi, my, my dad took an interest, and we used to we used to watch it together every week for a while, at least until I just kind of stopped watching it for whatever reason. I, I think I might have missed a DVR recording that week or something, I don't know, but I, I totally get that feeling. <laughs> my dad has never had any interest in anime, and the only anime my mom ever liked was Naruto. <laughs> <laughs> well, she tried watching Oron, but she didn't like it. <laughs> well, that's a we had a we had a vhs of the old fox dub of my neighbor totoro several years ago and that was the only anime i'd ever watched up until i was probably like 15 or 16 so it was interesting how that was the one thing that managed to worm its way into my household all those years ago wow <laughs> i'm glad to hear that your dad walked away with an appreciation of urasawa yeah absolutely it also helps that, that there's a, a general love of classic rock that is seen in a lot of the series, mainly 20th Century Boys, so that that's something that was really easy to, to talk about with. Um, so I guess in general, how, how, how was Los Angeles? Wow, it was very different from the Midwest. Very 
very big. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, I've been, I've been to the East Coast a handful of times, places like New York, and it was a lot less crowded than I was expecting from a, compared to like New York City or Chicago. So that was that was nice. Uh, I got got all the important pictures, like getting a picture of the the Nicolas Cage Hollywood star. That was that was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure. I'm sure it was just as cold as uh, as in the Midwest, right? Oh man, uh, yeah. No, no. I had to like drive through a, an actual life threatening blizzard to get to the the airport. So that was terrifying. Like, like nearly went off the road several times and got to emerge in seventy plus degree weather. So, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't we all love to escape to LA or somewhere in the southern part of the country to escape these harsh? Harsh weather conditions. It's been in the negatives all week. It's been snowing all week in Minnesota. It's awful. I was gonna say it. It feels so good to have another Midwesterner on the podcast to kind of to, just to share in our pain of the cold oh, in the winter <laughs> and how much we just despise it. It was funny it, touching down there. I, was, I just was thinking to myself, "Oh man, Los Angeles. This is this is where Kevin Yamagata lives." <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I just kept thinking about it through. I'm like, man, I, I don't know if any of those places in Billy Bat were actual actual buildings, but I don't think I'd be able to find them on my two days here in the city. But oh man, I'm, I'm in the same city where, where Billy Bat took place for part of it. <laughs> if you see any Kevin cosplayers and get freaked out, it's like, whoa, he's real. <laughs> uh, not this might sound a bit weird, but I've looked online and I think I might have been the only person to have ever done a Kevin Yamagata cosplay. I cannot find any others. Wow, that's a shame. <laughs> oh man, yeah, but yeah, no, that, that that was really great. So just got there on Tuesday night to to get ready for the opening of the event on Wednesday, and that yeah, they got to got to the hotel and thought, okay, we're gonna get up early tomorrow. We have a few hours to walk around before the 10 a.m. opening. So then, yeah, like at, at 10 a.m. on on Wednesday, we were able to to head up to the where the Japan House Gallery was, which is right on Hollywood Boulevard. Like the the Japan House is in the same block and the same like building, con- like connected conglomerate of buildings that like the the Chinese Theater and the Dolby Theater, and so it's where it's like this is where the Oscars take place, just just right there. And to to start off the day, we we saw signs at Japan House and went up there, and it was on the fifth floor of the area, and we realized after it opened that, oh, this is actually just the Japan House's upstairs office where they're going to have the, like, like where they have talks and events. But we were able to talk with the with the receptionist up there, and he was very friendly and excited to talk about the, the exhibit with us, and uh, said that the actual event, or like, in the gallery would be downstairs on the second floor. But before we headed down there, he he did mention, oh yeah, there we had we had an event last night. It was a, like a VIP event, and I had, I'd seen a few pictures on Twitter about that. So they had um, the the artist who draws the comic Snot Girl post about that. She had a had a picture of Urasawa holding her book, and it was really really incredible seeing that. the The receptionist had even mentioned that they had a number of very big name Hollywood stars there that he was not expecting to see. And it was the kind of thing where this is a person who works in Hollywood in the same like block where the Oscars take place. And he seemed impressed by the the caliber of people who were there. And he was not allowed to say who it was. Although when I did mention the name Guillermo del Toro, there was a noticeable reaction from him and another (laughs) staff worker. So I have a suspicion that del Toro was in the building. 
I would not be surprised, honestly. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Which, he's another one of my favorite artists. A man just holding out hope that eventually, one day, he'll be able to make his monster show. Hopefully. Oh, man. Maybe that, he came to meet for Darasada to talk about it. Here's hoping. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, so then, but, yeah, following that, we just went right downstairs to the opening of the gallery. It was a smaller gallery than I was expecting. But they were able to pack it just full of information and artwork. So the Japan house had a a large gift shop area full of just general Japanese items. It, w- it was more high-end stuff than, than you'd find at, like, a just a store. So it was not... Yeah, I mean, it was fancy, expensive stuff that I would never consider buying. <laughs> but So, so was it... Hmm. So, so they didn't, they didn't just have, like, you know, Pocky or whatever? Oh, no. It was... I mean, it, it's like... Well, you, you could get a bookmark for for fifteen dollars, kind of thing, and that's the low oh, end. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Although the book, it better be a good bookmark. They did have a bookmark that was the do 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 like sound effect, and it looked suspiciously like those of Hirohiko Araki in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. It did not have <laughs> any like copyright info, but it's like, ooh, I can tell what you're going for with this. Hmm. Unlocked. Unlicensed JoJo sound effect bookmarks. Very interesting. <laughs> but no, it was very, very cool. Like, like just they all, they also had a small gift shop area full of Urusawa items. So the primary things were a number of postcards with his artwork on them. But then they also had some some fancier things, such as a sketchbook with with his artwork on the cover for the exhibition, like a canvas printed uh, artwork of Jigoro. Yawara's grandfather dressed in like a cowboy outfit and at a saloon, which <laughs> seemed like an odd fit, but hey, it was there. Um, they had billy bat tea towels and a billy bat drawstring bag, which did you get any of? Them? I I got a I got the billy bat drawstring bag. I was not expecting there to be actual billy bat merchandise. Like, dude, how we don't actually have billy bat over here? But I was very pleasantly surprised to see that, and. Uh, yeah, they also had t-shirts that were incredible, but they were $70. $70? Oh. <laughs> but man, all of them were fantastic. They had one with Billy on it, one with Kana, and uh, one with a friend. And man, they looked, they looked really, really great. They just were a bit out of my price range. Man, if only we lived in the universe of one of our series, then I'm sure we could have probably got it a Billy Batcher for dirt cheap. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or even, like, there, like I, I read 20th Century Boys again recently, and I noticed that there's one portion in a flashback to, like, the late 1980s where you see Kenji and another character, and this the other character is, like, shoplifting manga from a, a convenience store, and you see him shoplifting a volume of Pineapple Army, and a volume of Yawara, and I'm like, what are the implications of this? Does Urasawa himself exist inside the, the universe of 20th Century Boys? <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that was that was really great. But, uh, oh, to, to just go back to the exhibition itself, there there were a bunch of different, uh, like, like marquees outside of the, uh, the area where they had large display cases, with life-size printings of a number of the, the different characters. So they had Kenji from 20th Century Boys, uh, Jigoro and Yawara from Yawara. They had a, a television screen running the Billy Bat commercial that aired alongside the, the release of the final volume, and an actual Billy Bat sketch that Urasawa did with a, a marker before the opening of the event, like on the wall. So it was a and like signed and dated and everything. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. With, within the event itself... 
the general area had a number of different kiosks set up with different with with artwork on it, as well as uh, explanations of several of his series. So there would be things such as like timelines of when all of his series were running, such as how back in the 80s and 90s he would have two serializations running concurrently, which is just unbelievable, the, the output that he had. And it was very cool to see the actual timeline of that, so you could line up and see which series were running at which time and how they compared with each other as far as uh, um, as that and which magazines they were running in. And a, a lot of different just displays talking about like manga in general as a medium, and how different techniques can be used in manga, as well as uh, explanations of several different series. And then they also had the actual original artwork for several of the series that were displayed behind glass, but they also had English translations on top of them. So these were the, the Nemu like, name storyboards of the, of the series. Although, okay, maybe Nemu refers to the earlier versions. I, I don't recall the exact terminology there, but... From what I remember of Bakuman, I think so. I think that's an even rougher draft. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say, I think it's basically just a rough draft or a manuscript. Okay, they did definitely have those. They had the the entire rough draft for the final chapter of Monster in a display case. Oh my gosh! Yeah. That's amazing. And, but yeah, so these were, I think, essentially, actually, second generation copies so, uh, so, it, but it was, it's a second generation copy of the original drawing, but it would be the one that has the, the Japanese text that is printed and then cut out and pasted on top of the speech bubbles. And they did the same thing, but they also added the English text on top of that. So for some of the cases where the series had already been printed in English, such as 20th Century Boys, Monster, and Pluto, they used the translations and lettering from the Viz Media releases. So they had those on there. Slightly, unfortunately, they used the the versions from the previous editions of them rather than the perfect editions. So with with the perfect editions of both Monster and Twentieth Century Boys, they've updated the lettering, and it's uh, it's really really nice. In actually, in both cases, it's done by a letterer named Steve Dutro, who is one of my favorite letterers in the business, and he uses a font that is custom to himself. Like you're you're not going to see that font from any other letterer, and it. It just looks really, really good. So I was a little bit sad that they, they used that, but honestly, you're not there for the lettering. You're there for you're there for the artwork, and it it was very, very cool. But then on top of that, which this is what I think is one of the most exciting parts of the entire exhibit, is that they had translations of several of his works that have not been officially released in English yet, and some of them haven't been translated at all. So they had they had like uh, chapter seven of Master Keaton Remaster, which is the the single volume continuation for Master Keaton that he worked on in 2012 and 2013, that takes place 20 years after the end of Master Keaton. So it's kind of like a, a really nice catch up on where where the characters are at 20 some years later, and you get to see them all older and stuff. So they had uh, a chapter where Keaton gets to meet up with his daughter Yuriko again, and it, it was re- really cool to be actually able to actually just read that entire chapter with the original artwork. Nice! Yeah, and the same thing goes for other series such as uh, Mujirushi, The Sign of Dreams, and Yawara. Oh, yeah. Mujirushi. That's good. Yeah, so like, like with Yawara, they even are going to be switching out the exhibit every two weeks, so it runs for 
uh, around eight weeks, and they're going to be switching out that story every two weeks to kind of mirror the serialized format. So I don't remember, I don't know the exact positioning of the chapter, but they, the chapter that was on display was from volume 29, which is the final volume. So I'm guessing that it will be the final four chapters of Yawara that will be on display. Hmm. Nice. They did something similar, like, with, it wasn't always the first chapter. Sometimes it was the first chapter, sometimes it was a mix of them. With Monster, they showed a, a good mix of chapters, including the final chapter, so it, it had to, a few people who were standing around talking about it were cautioned, hey, don't, maybe don't read that, that is the end of the series that they have up <laughs> right there. <laughs> I'd be surprised if, like, any Urasawa fan came to the exhibit not knowing the ending of Monster. There were some, but like, like there are certainly people there who hadn't even heard of Urusawa since it's just right there in this shopping complex, essentially. There's a Hot Topic right across the, the hallway from it. <laughs> Was the Hot Topic selling any Urusawa merchandise? You know, I didn't stop in there, so I couldn't uh, say. <laughs> maybe there they were cheaper Billy Bat shirts. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, when, 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 you, when, you ha- when you're a property... Especially an anime manga property that has a uh, licensed merchandise at Hot Topic, you know you've made it big. Yeah, <laughs> there were a number of people who walked into the exhibit with Hot Topic bags. <laughs> oh, so like like some among the other things that they had there, they had uh, like this walkway that you could go through where they had um, printed on like long strips of uh, like signage material that was like like kind of floppy. But just uh, panels of of Urusawa's manga, and you could walk through it or go around it, and you, you could see them. And it had panels of all these different series. They had a, the a life size mannequin of Friend, the from Twentieth Century Boys, and it was using the mask that was used in the actual live action movie trilogy for the movie. So it was the actual movie prop. Wow, that's really cool. It was really, really cool seeing that up close because you could see the different like folds in the fabric and stuff. Like, I'd made a cosplay of that character a handful of years ago, and it was really difficult to try to actually mimic the the folded look of the fabric and make something that you could actually see through. And it was kind of nice and reassuring to see the mask used in the movies and realize, yep, there is there's absolutely no way that the actor was able to see through this mask. <laughs> <laughs> they were blind, just like I was. <laughs> Even though he has a big eye painted on his mask, can't see anything. <laughs> Ironically, he can't see. Um, so was this... Uh, I, I'm not sure if this matters at all, um, because I've, I've never been to an event like this, so I don't know for sure. So what, what, was this the kind of thing that you had to like get a ticket to, or was this something that like anybody could just kind of walk in and just look at all the pretty pictures? The art exhibit itself is completely free. It's just right there in the in like the the shopping center. You can walk right into it. There were I, there were definitely people there who had no idea what it was. They just saw the uh the one of the big pieces of signage that they have in the front of the Japan House gift shop there. The it was artwork from the, a cover of I think volume seventeen of Twentieth Century Boys, where it has Kenji and some of his friends saying, "Hey, come look at this." And it's just kind of like beckoning you into the to look at the shop and and the exhibit. So it was it was really interesting seeing people walk in who very obviously did not understand what it was, but still still take a look at everything. Hmm, that, nice. That's pretty neat. One of the items that they like the the display things that they had was a display of all of the of, of a bunch of different foreign versions of Urasawa's 
releases. So they had a map of the world along with um, lists of what has been licensed in which area. So you get to see all these countries that have Billy Bat while we still don't. <laughs> Man. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, they also had a, a, a number of like paperbacks there. So it was very cool seeing like the, the alternate covers used throughout the, the world. Sadly, we weren't able to open them. I would have really, really liked to see what the like the editing and lettering would look like on some of these. They had like a Polish copy of Pluto and mm. like mm. Indonesian copy of Monster. And it, oh man, it was very, very cool seeing all of those. And you can tell that some of them were even fairly old. Like I think the Spanish copy of Pineapple Army that they have there looked like an older publication. There are uh, also sketches from Urasawa's childhood. So they had one that was listed as the earliest known surviving artwork from his childhood. So it was a, a drawing of like Tetsujin 28 from he was, from when he was six years old. Oh, that's oh my a, gosh. That, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, like other various um, like manga manuscripts that he drew as a child, like in uh, like, like, like composition notebooks and, and other piece, pieces of artwork. And what, what was very, very cool about it is that like when, when reading 20th century boys, I always got the feeling that the character Kenji had a lot of influence, was influenced a lot by his own childhood because they were both born in 1960 and it shows him like growing up and like playing with his friends and drawing these pictures and stuff. And it's like, wow, this this, this feels like it has a lot of parallels to, to Urusawa's life itself. And uh, if you looked closely at the manuscripts for 20th Century Boys that they had on display, there was one that displayed a chapter where it showed... Kenji's drawing in the Book of Prophecy within the story, and it showed the the giant robot. And hmm. you look at it, and you realize that that picture of the giant robot wasn't something that was drawn for the manga. It was an extra piece of paper that was on the manuscript that was all yellowed and old. And it, while there was no note specifically saying it, it seems almost certain that that was actually one of Naoki Urasawa's childhood drawings that he just incorporated into the manga. Oh wow. my god. That is yeah. an amazing revelation. That's actually something a design he came up with as a kid that he reused for 20th Century Boys. That's awesome. Oh yeah, and on on a on a similar note with 20th Century Boys, uh the perfect editions were started getting released in America just last year, which have like like the double volumes with the colored pages and everything and they're very nice. And I I noticed when I, when the first one came out that there was an extra speech bubble added to the very first chapter. So there's the like within the first few pages of the manga, Kenji plays the record twentieth century boy over the loudspeakers of his middle school. He was expecting it to cause some revolution, be this amazing revelatory event that would lead the school into an age of rock and roll, and he just was kinda sad that it didn't. And there it says, I expected everything to change, but but nothing did. But there was an extra speech bubble added into that that page in the perfect edition that says and yet, dot, 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 which holds a lot of significance to the story, especially once you, you know some of the later events. And I, like, I noticed that when I compared the books, but at the event, they had that page there, and it was like the original page that he had colored. And if you look closely at it, that speech bubble there is actually pasted onto the page in Japanese. So you, you see the, the bubble itself being added like physically to the page. And since the, the lettering that was used in the exhibit is the lettering from the, the previous Viz release, it doesn't include that bubble. So that one was left in Japanese, a bit of an outlier compared to all of the other ones that were translated. 
And sure enough, if you look at the, the final color page of the first chapter of 20th Century Boys in the Perfect Edition, you can see a little seam around that box where it was actually pasted on. So when they scanned it in for the, the release, you can see that difference there. Nice. That is pretty interesting. Yeah. Like, so I think that, yeah, that, that covers a lot of what was there at the exhibit. They also had just a number of very large prints of, of different pieces of artwork. They had um, interviews with with uh, a manga historian from Japan and a manga re- or a comic like critic from from France, and uh, various different pieces of concept art and sketches. Oh, oh, okay. One of my favorites was there was a piece of like concept art for Billy Bat when he was brainstorming ideas. And if you you look at it, it it shows that it's closer to Mickey Mouse in in his design than what was eventually used to. Because I mean it's. It's it's obvious that Mickey Mouse was the inspiration for the character of Billy, but he was also brainstorming ideas for the name of the character. So you see Becky, Bobby, Booty, Billy, <laughs> the Bat. <laughs> so oh, yeah, the, the, I just, like <laughs> just just think just think of what could have been. We we could have had Becky Bat or Booty Back. <laughs> booty Bat. <laughs> 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 Maybe that's what we need to get licensed over here in America. Is rename it, rename it Booty Bat. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that would bring in a lot of the younger crowd. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, come for the booty. Stay for the the wonderful message on the the importance of comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, but also, since it was the opening night of the of the exhibition for the public, they also were having a book signing. And an interview that night. So the book signing was limited to the first 50 people to, to purchase a book from their shop, which was at 5 p.m. is when they were allowing books to be purchased. Although you could line up at three. So it ended up we ended up lining up like four separate times. It was like loitering around before 3 p.m. And like a bunch of people who obviously were very excited. And then at 3 p.m. we lined up for a little while and they gave us cards which we could sign our names on, and then that would give us a, a number in line. So then at 5 p.m., we lined up again in order, and uh, an attendant came around and looked at our cards and, and the names written on them, and then transcribed those into katakana characters to show how our name would be written phonetically in Japanese. Wow. And then we got through that... The, the 50 people got through the line and were allowed to purchase um, one of four different books. It was the first volume of the four different series that are licensed here. So 20th Century Boys, Monster, Pluto, and Master Keaton. And then finally, around 6 p.m., everyone was able to line back up for the actual signing event. Wow, that sounds really organized. Yeah, like, they're, they're, like it worked out really well. The, like, I'm really glad they had like the, the card system worked out, because otherwise it would have felt a little bit hectic i mean yeah i need to have people staying there for two hours in line probably clogging up traffic in the mall area yeah definitely but how many people lined up in total did you get to like see like were there more than 50 i know that there were definitely more than 50 people there but it seems like the the people who were, were interested in getting a signature tended to get there earlier in the day so there were not a ton of people who were looking for a signature that day that that I saw who were unable to get one, though the actual talk that happened later that night was 
a lot more difficult to get into because that was something where they had free registration online. So you would just use Eventbrite to, to reserve a ticket for it. And I reserved a ticket the day that the event was announced, and my, my dad reserved one the very next day, like at night. And we spoke with some other people who tried reserving tickets the same night that my dad did, and they were unable to. Whoa, wow. that filled up fast. Yeah, and since it was an event that was free to register for, there were quite a few people who did not show up. So it's it's not like they stopped me from registering, even though I hadn't planned out my trip yet. So so there were definitely people who did not show up, so they were able to let people in to the event after that, which was nice. And oh yeah, like I had hadn't even like mentioned it, but the the trans like the host of the event, as far as the uh, the moderator for the interview and also the translator who helped during the signings was Frederick L. Schott. He's the like just one of the most renowned manga translators ever. Uh, like like one of the, the old guard of, of manga translation who worked on Pluto alongside Jared Cook and translated so many of Osamu Tezuka's works. Mm-hmm. A big Tezuka scholar. I have his book on, called The Astro Boy Essays. Fascinating read. Uh, yeah. Before the signing occurred, he was just sitting out at a, a chair around, like, outside of the, the Japan House area. So I went up and spoke with him for about five minutes, and it, it, he was incredibly pleasant and nice to talk to, and it was a really great, great time talking with him. I thanked him for his work on, on various Tezuka things that I've read and and on Pluto, and he, he actually had a, a copy of Muji Rushi there as, like, personal reading material that he had been reading through. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very there there were some other people around my age who were who were there who were all just very excited and I after I walked away after talking with him one of the guys walked up he's like wait oh my gosh is 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 that shot over there is is that, is that him yeah yeah he, he's he's very friendly why don't you go say hi you're you're wearing a phoenix shirt man you, like he, he translated that and he's like oh i, I can't do that i'm oh, i can't but oh man it was it was it was very one of the the coolest things about the entire event was just being surrounded by people who cared so much about urasawa yeah like like even in my experiences with going to anime conventions not a ton of people know urasawa stuff like like i cosplayed the friend and two people or so knew who I was. It's oh. despite despite his acclaim, he's not he's not exactly mainstream when it comes to like like cosplay character recognition. Yeah, I mean I could see that. He's beloved by comics critics and like people well worst in manga, but to the general anime fan, probably because a lot of his works haven't been adapted into anime and like widely distributed, like they might not know him. Yeah, it also doesn't help that like if you're if you're cosplaying any of his characters, they tend to just wear like very plain normal clothes. <laughs> Friend has his mask, but other than that, it's like oh oh what was what does Kevin Yamagata wear? Well, he wears slacks and a white shirt. I think Kenji has a unique look, especially like in the third act of the series. Oh yeah, certainly. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so the. With the the signing, we were able to, to to walk up there and give him the book that we had for for signing. It was all, you couldn't bring anything else from the outside. No, no other books of his. No fan art. It was only the the books that were purchased there, which is, seems like a reasonable reasonable thing. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, and but the, but then he uh, was sitting there and just was 
incredibly friendly to everyone and, and smiling and, and shaking hands. And he would write the person's name in katakana, also draw the, the friendship symbol from 20th Century Boys, and then sign his name on it. And we could speak with him briefly, and uh, Fred was there to translate. So, like, I didn't have a question or didn't didn't feel right asking something that might take too long. So I just simply said, thank you for writing manga that has changed my life. And I, I really do think by the way he reacted that he understood what I said before it was even translated. And it just it made me so happy. Oh, that, that's nice. That's amazing. Yeah. Like while, while now Hirosawa doesn't speak English, I, he does have some understanding of the language itself. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nice to see that he, he 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 seemed to understand your message, which which is great. Yeah, so it was just that was just surreal and and amazing, and I think that takes us to up to the the final portion of the day, though, which was the actual interview with him. So that that took place upstairs on the the fifth floor area that that I had gone to at the beginning of the day, and it was a room that I think around two hundred people were able to be seated in it, and. Urasawa sat up on the, the stage alongside uh, Frederick Schott, who moderated it, and there was also another interpreter there. So uh, Fred said, he's like, oh man, it's, it's nice that I don't have to, to handle translation the whole time. I can, I can understand you, but I can just, just sit back and relax this time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from there, it was a general inter- interview about just his experiences with manga and how he got started. And, Relaying some things about how he just, he, from a young age, just always was drawing and just, just something he always loved doing. And yeah, he said he would draw like 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 manga when he was maybe like six to seven, eight years old. And his one of his uncles saw saw it. And he's like, "Oh man, Malky, that's that's amazing, that's amazing drawing. You 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 have to be a mangaka when you grow up." And his response was, "What what is this guy talking about?" <laughs> and I, I gotta say, man, his his uh, delivery and sense of humor throughout the entire event was was very very funny. Like, like even without being able to speak Japanese, you could just tell that he's having a ton of fun telling these stories and had a had a great sense of humor about it. And the interpreter did a very good job conveying that as well. And yeah, so some some of the questions that were asked were, were things just talking about uh, like how he works with assistants and he admitted that he's never been a huge fan of having assistants helping with his work since he wants to have control over it. So with a number of previous projects, he would have had four assistants where recently with his newest series, Asadora, he's gone down to just having two assistants. Interesting. Yeah. They, 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 uh, they asked like, so we, we have seen things where like assistants might help with things like, filling in inks or, or doing beta and like coloring in the blacks. What, what, what do you have them help with that? And he said, Oh no, that that's the most fun part. I like coloring in the hair and coloring in the blacks. I, I, I save that for myself. I help have the assistants help me with things like backgrounds. <laughs> I, I think that's fair, honestly. Yeah. And yeah. you could, you could tell that he has a, a certain sense of pride about his work in the sense that he, he will have assistants and, and definitely needs their help to be able to meet the deadlines that he has but he wants to, he wants to do everything himself if he can. Like he he certainly wants to get the results that he can produce himself. He sounds very Togashi like in a way. Mm-hmm. It reminded me also of uh, reading about um, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, who is the the artist who uh, drew Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin and was the character designer and animation director on the original series. 
where in one of the origin volumes they mentioned that he drew that entire series by himself without a single assistant. That is Damn. so insane, considering the level of detail in that manga. Yeah, I, I don't even know how he managed to do that, because it's such a long, detailed series. Also, there are some great anecdotes about um, how how Urasaki comes up with his ideas for, for stories and artwork. So they asked him, so where do, you, where do you come up with this stuff? And he said, well, a lot of the time I come up with some of my favorite ideas when I am sitting in the bathtub. So I'll just be sitting there soaking and then, and then, oh, oh, I, I got to write this. But I can't because I'm in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> or otherwise, uh, when when asked about like like, like so that that'll be like story ideas. But then when it comes to some like art ideas, they said he said, oh yeah, a lot of art ideas act for me for like specific panels or, or pictures will come to me when I'm cleaning. But sometimes it's not not always easy. So I'll just I'll start cleaning my room and I'll keep cleaning and cleaning and nothing's coming to me. And then eventually I'll just look down and my house is entirely clean and I still don't have anything drawn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have I have to be honest. Uh, earlier, I was expecting you to say he comes up with his ideas while while in the bathroom, and I was I was gonna lose my shit. <laughs> <laughs> they, he was also asked about how so many of his stories are so complex and have plot points that will be set up and then paid off several years later. So things that things that are just very very detailed and and interesting and. That's one of my favorite things about his work, especially with, with like, like Billy Bat has things that will pay off years later, and it's incredible. And when asked about that, he said that, well, I don't even know how something's going to turn out all the time, because if you think about it, I write series that are around 20 volumes long a lot of the time, and that means seven years or so of serialization. And if you're drawing something for seven years, you have to keep it interesting for yourself. You can't just come up with something and then stick to that for the whole seven years. You have to surprise yourself on the way to keep it entertaining to work on. So he said that there will definitely be things that he'll come up with that will change as the series goes on. And also part of his process when coming up with a main story like that would be to visualize like a trailer for a movie full of all of the coolest scenes you could think of. And then hmm. take that and extrapolate that out into a story. So he specifically gave an example from the very first chapter of 20th Century Boys, where you have the, the scene with Kenji playing the record, and then uh, he said that he was sitting in the bath one day and he heard someone on the radio say, oh, without these men, we wouldn't have made it to the 21st century. And he thought, oh, I want to know who those men are. I want to know what's, what's going on with that. But then also he'd come up with the he'd come up with another idea for in the the trailer in his mind of a teenage girl being woken up from her sleep in the middle of the night and then running over to the window pulling it back and seeing a giant robot walking through the city and that that was something that really stuck in his mind so he he drew that in the first chapter and he didn't really he said he didn't really know what it was just yet like that was something he put there and he knew that he would get back to it and that's something that is paid off in volume 22 of 20th Century Boys. It's shown in the very first chapter, but it doesn't happen until volume 22 out of 24. Wow. And you also find out like who that character is and stuff, and he hadn't planned out who that character was yet. He drew her in there, but didn't decide who she was going to be until later, which is incredibly ironic considering... That character is on the very next page of that first chapter 
as an infant. Wow. That's crazy that Urasawa just puts in these seeds of ideas that he doesn't know what he's going to do with yet, but then figures it out as he draws and, like, as the story like, naturally evolves. But he's able to reintegrate all these, like, seeds that he set up just so seamlessly back into the story and make it feel like he's had it all planned out from beginning to end. When really, like many other mangaka, he's making it up as he goes. That that's not something anyone can just do. Mm-mm. Yeah, and I know that uh, in interviews he's mentioned how he, he's worked with an editor for several decades now, uh, Takashi Nagasaki, who was the co-author of Billy Bat, but also helped with planning on several other works such as like Master Keaton and Monster and Pluto and Twentieth Century Boys. So the in uh, an interview that was done for the the Twentieth Century Boys live action movies. He mentioned that Urasawa will come up with all of the the major plot ideas and like like the the general arc and the characters, but uh, every now and then Nagasaki will come in and help to flesh out a few of the smaller details to help make things tie together. So it's it's neat to see how he's worked with this man for almost thirty years now and is able to to come up with things like that. Yeah. The, oh, so uh, there uh, one of the other people that that asked him about things talked about how. He's been reluctant to work on digital, like to have his manga released digitally. So far, the only things of his that have been actually released digitally were a one shot that came out last September, and then also his current serialization called Asadora. Other than that, he's been a big opponent of digital releases. And while he didn't mention anything about why he's actually relented, which I'm assuming is mostly just business pressure from the publisher. He did talk about how, and this is something that I think is very interesting, like, like one of the reasons he prefers print manga so much isn't necessarily just the feel of the paper or something, but it's the fact that you have two pages right next to each other in print format. So you'll have, you'll have like two individual pages, and you'll, you'll be reading through them and reading through the flow of the manga, but then you get to the bottom left-hand corner of a page, and that panel has to be the most important panel of the, the two pages because it's the one that makes you want to turn the page and find out what's next. So he said that over the course of a 20-page chapter, you have to recreate that feeling 10 times. You have to, you have to come up with a, an interesting panel that wants to propel the motion of the story forward. And then he also talked about how with that, you can lead into a two-page spread, which can have this enormous impact. So... He want he said that you want to be able to turn that page, and then when you have that on like a, a cell phone and reading digitally, you don't get that same impact from from turning the page there. You might get half of the image and have to swipe over to see the other half, or turn the phone to landscape mode to be actually able to see it. So he said that yeah, that that was a big portion of it. Yeah, it's a different format, so it requires like a different way to create manga. Hmm. I saw other people who I think were at the event tweeting about that, and I, I, I'm, I'm very mixed about that because it's like I, I totally see where Urasawa is coming from, and I think, I think that idea is totally valid. Like I, I see where he's coming from, where it's like, you know, if I'm reading something in print, like I, I, I like that feeling of kind of like transitioning into a huge two page spread from from the previous page, and that 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 is a really that's a gratifying feeling, and you know. As as much as I prefer, you know, collecting my manga digitally nowadays, mostly for like shelf space and whatnot or lack thereof, like it is slightly annoying where it's like, you know, 
obviously when I'm reading manga digitally, I'm 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 reading it a page at a time, and then when it's like clearly I've gotten to a two page spread, I have to like turn my phone and everything, and it's like I I can I I kind of understand that feeling because it's kind of like it doesn't really like take me out of the experience. Like personally, just speaking from my own personal experience reading manga and comics, like you know, I don't necessarily have much of a problem. You know, like I I, st- I still get that experience personally. You know, whether it's digitally or print, but like I can see where he's coming from. I guess. Yeah, reading a manga in print and reading a manga digitally are two different experiences, and so the same story. When you're reading it in, in those different uh, mediums, you're not going to be able maybe to get the same impact that you might have with print than you would in digital just because of the way you read using a digital platform by swiping your fingers across your screen or clicking your mouse over to the next page. It's very different from the sensation of flipping the page. And definitely... I. A lot of stories, I de- certainly Urasawa stories, are probably not as effective when you're reading it digitally and you have, like, these moments that Urasawa has carefully made that, you know, you need to read it and where you're seeing these two pages at once and you have this panel, like, at the bottom left corner that's going to make you flip the page and then I can engage you in this pace and keep you flipping pages engrossed in the story... That's going to be different on a digital platform where you're going to see a single page at the same time usually. And so you have to, you know, focus on having every single page have that panel on the bottom left that makes you flip over. And when you create two-page spreads, you have to make them while keeping in mind that a lot of readers will only see half of that image on their screen. And they'll have to flip over to see the other half of the image. So it's like a completely different way of constructing a manga. And so I completely understand like Urasawa's thought process here, why he doesn't think his works would be best read digital. Because like you said, he's making each chapter with these 10 page turn panels in mind because one per every two pages. But like if he was to make a manga for digital only, he would need like 20 of those. Per page, because when you're reading digitally, you're reading one page at a time, whereas with print, you're reading two at a time. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a kind of thing where it's a little bit disappointing that he that he would just disqualify things from digital release because I certainly identify with what Colton says in that. Yeah, I I am out of shelf space. I I still want to collect more manga, but man, I don't have the space for it right now. And just in general, I feel like just at least having the option for digital, you know, I think would just make for wider accessibility of his works in general. Yeah, it would be more convenient for sure. Like Kodansha USA has been a really big proponent of digital releases. So it's it's sad that a number of the things that they've released digitally aren't available in print format, but they've released so much more than they would have otherwise. So it's 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 it's, it's nice to see that they have this this avenue to be able to print things there. Yeah, D- digital has allowed Kodansha to release things that they couldn't invest in if they had to release them in print. Long series like Ace of the Diamond, Chiyaha, Faru, they were able to do g- digital first. And like if they had to invest in doing them print runs right off the bat, they I don't think they would have taken that chance because of how long those series are and like how risky that would be. 
but digital, there's a lot less risk. That's why I like I don't have incredibly high hopes that Yawara would ever be localized recently, like in the short term, because it's a twenty-nine volume long sports romantic comedy from the eighties. It's that's not a guaranteed seller, and that's a big, it's a long series to to try to bring out here. So it's yeah, it's that's a that's a big gamble. Yeah, I would need to have a lot of push i guess in the mainstream like somehow like the western fandom like becomes really aware of yawara and there becomes a demand real big demand for yawara for a publisher to take a chance on it but like as it is like even wit or asawa's name attached it is going to be a tough sell because i know definitely i forget who tried to license and release the anime over here but i heard that did not go well yeah, Animego did did the first forty episodes, and they did a fantastic job with it. It's real, really nice set, and that that's it. The it's forty episodes out of one hundred and twenty four. I think uh, anecdotally, I people just don't know about Yawara in the West like at all, despite it running in the same time slot as Ranma One Half and regularly beating it in rankings on TV. Yeah, I mean it was a big deal. Like it inspired olympic like medalists in japan last year i i went to a convention and i found a few like uh japanese fan uh fan comic magazines so they had like yawara on the cover so i like bought them it's like oh man this is great to see this artwork here and you open it up and there are a few pieces of fan art of yawara and then like 90 plus percent of it is all different rumiko takahashi properties So lots of Ranma, a little bit of Inuyasha, and some some uh, Urusei Yatsura stuff in there. Also, at the same convention, I saw a, a guy wearing a sweatshirt that had Yawara on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that. So I went up and wow. I was like, dude, I love your Yawara sweatshirt. And he gave me this blank stare, and he had no idea who was on his sweatshirt. And then How did you even get that sweatshirt then? <laughs> did someone, did you just find it at like a thrift store or like a bargain sale? Like, what is he like, no, here, here, here it is. Like, a few weeks later, I was just scrolling through Facebook and I see that a friend of mine who I hadn't talked with in a long time liked a post that was one of those like pop up bootleg shirt sellers that said, buy your anime 80s girl aesthetic shirt here. And it was uh... that, sh- it was that thing. It was just some pop-up bootleg site that had just ripped an image of Yawara and was selling it on on sweatshirts. Oh my god. They That's just not cool. Like some generic character. Like what? I don't I don't blame them for wanting it because man, I think Yawara is like peak 80s anime fashion like aesthetic. Like oh my god. She's a fashionable like, judo girl. Yeah. Also, okay, here's something that that's really, really interesting that I found out was that when they did the when they did like the Blu-ray releases of Yawara in Japan, and they did the complete edition of the manga, which were like 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 volume and a half long and had like all of the color pages, Urasawa drew new cover art for all of them, and all of them have licensed Forever Twenty One clothing. Oh my god! <laughs> so that's really so wow. like if, if you yeah if you look at it, they look more modern. It looks like it it looks like she's wearing more fashionable clothing and they're just it's really cute and really great seeing that so it's there was a forever 21 in the same building as our event but i don't know that that rosella went there can we get forever 21 to sponsor a new yawara anime in which he's just wearing like older clothing line 
can, can we can we give Forever Twenty One to uh, to sponsor a, a, an actual release of the manga? That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I, I, it was so funny because I didn't even realize like how that happened until I like I have a few copies of it in Japanese, and I just was flipping through the back mainly to see like the credit page and I just see like copyright forever 21. I'm like what the, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, but yeah, like getting back to just the, the actual interview, um, one of the, the questions that was asked from the audience was how his current serialization is a series called Asadora. And it, it stars a female protagonist for the first time in a while, aside from like Mujirushi, which was about a year ago that had which had a female protagonist, but it was a single volume. He said, "Yeah, you've you've mainly had like male protagonists for a long time. What what was the the impetus for that?" And uh, Urasawa said, "Well, I was drawing Mujirushi, and I I had uh, Kasumi-chan here, and she was just so cute and so much fun. It was." A breath of fresh air, honestly. And then he, he goes on to say, I'd, I've been drawing all of these terribly stern male protagonists for a long time, and they all had this face. And he, he like I mean, like he had a projector out uh, so that you could see his drawings there because he was doing live drawings throughout the event, doing like little demonstrations of technique. And he draws, starts drawing this like uh, this face with the the eyes, the eyebrows, and like the the jaw and everything. And he, it's funny because if you look at it. That could be it. Could be Kenzo Tenma. That could be it. Could be it, a little bit like Kenji, but it could also be Kevin Yamagata. He it's a similar face. Yeah. And he said, "Oh, I've been drawing this this stern face for so long." And I thought, "Man, I have looked at these grumpy eyebrows for way too much time." <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then I I thought, "Oh man, I need to make these characters more manly." So I'd add like stubble on them and add a little mustache, and he like adds that on as he's going. And that was great. And then he just talked about how with with uh, the new series he was drawing Asa, the the protagonist of it, and he's just like, yeah, she's just she's fun. And with with that series, it seems as though it's going to be one that's going to span several decades, just like like Billy Bat or or Twentieth Century Boys. So so it's like, hey, this is a Shogakukan series. So Viz Media, you can please 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 license that. Yeah, please Viz more. Urasawa series. Oh, that'd be that'd be nice. Then someone else uh, asked about. Oh, this is this is great. Actually, when I was standing in line to to take a seat, there was a, an elderly woman who was probably in her seventies or eighties. There had a, a denim jacket just absolutely covered in one piece pins. And, <laughs> wow! And and like she was talking with with with, with me and and other people around us, and she she didn't actually she doesn't like hasn't watched one piece or read it she just went to some event once and they were giving out one piece pins and they didn't stop her from taking more so she's just like oh cool <laughs> i was gonna say that did, did she did she come up and was like excuse me are you oda <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love i love one piece draw luffy no <laughs> Draw Chopper! No, not modern Chopper! Old Chopper! He was cute at. <laughs> she, she turned to my father and I, and we were standing there. She's like, So, do you know anything about this man that we're seeing speak tonight? And, uh, <laughs> and it turns, she, she apparently she just goes to any event that the Japan House puts on. She just goes to everything they, they do. So, if she, and she was a, cre- a creative person who, uh, like, worked like and done like uh like speaking at like all over the country and decades past about creativity and artwork and things so she was just 
very excited about artwork in general, and it was great talking with her and hearing how she had no knowledge of Urasawa at all prior to the event, but was just very excited to be there. And she even she asked a question to him about um, what the importance of the artwork versus the story in his works would be. So whether or not there would be like a 50-50 split in importance there. And it was really interesting hearing his take on it, because what he said was, for him, the story is of the utmost importance. The artwork is there to facilitate the storytelling. So he views the way that he draws as not that he is drawing the story outright, but that there are characters that exist that are actors within the story. So what he's doing is he's drawing the actors acting out the story and it kind of flows naturally. There will be even times where it feels like it's not even his pen that's that's moving. Hmm. Yeah, which that also does remind me, one of the things that, that Urasawa has done in, in years past is that he's run a documentary series called Manben, mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. goes and he speaks with other mangaka and will film them working on their uh, on their practice. So it'll be uh, like filming them for a day or more at, at at work and then commentating over it with them in person and just talking about their art. So he's worked with amazing artists like like Higashimura, the, the artist of Princess Jellyfish and uh, Kengo Hanazawa from I Am a Hero, Inyo Asano, Takao Saito, Junji Ito. It's yeah. just mm-hmm. there. It's unbelievable seeing the different types of of talent that that are on display there and how all of their processes for creating manga are so different and none of them are wrong they're just using different techniques and methods and tools to create amazing works of art mm, there was definitely a point on i think on the show where we used to talk about that show quite a lot oh, Monben is mm-hmm. just amazing I, I i hope that that it's something that that he'll continue because I know that there were about three seasons of it and it would be wonderful to be able to see him speak with more artists about that. Mm, mm-hmm. I think the only, I think the only episode I've actually watched in full is the one with the one about Takao Saito. I remember that one being really interesting. I, I need, I need to watch the rest of that or whatever's out there. I, I guess. know I, I mm-hmm. haven't watched that episode myself. I've seen the, the Asano one a few times through just cause I've, I've shown it to, to people, especially cause I know a lot of people who, who love Asano's artwork and it's, it's just incredible seeing how he does all of that it's also incredibly stressful seeing the scene where he's like inking a page with a cigarette in his hand lit. And i'm like ah, keep ah, keep that away from your manuscript please please Saito, a real man's man <sighs> but yeah yeah and then so i think the last and fi- like the final question from the audience that that was asked which was one that I, it's like, man, I didn't want to be the person to ask it, so I'm glad someone did, was, oh no, how do we get more of your work localized? There's There are so many works, and he specifically brought up Dancing Policeman, which was like a single volume work that Urasawa did before uh, Pineapple Army or Yawara. Pineapple, wow. Yeah, he brought up Dan- yeah, Dancing Policeman, Yawara, and Billy Bat, and he said, we, we, we love your artwork. We would, we would really want to be able to support it here locally. How, how can we see about having that happen and he started off by saying well the the important thing really is talk to publishers like like make your voices heard make it known that the fans want to be able to read this it's something where like even mentioned throughout the exhibit it says that urasawa does not bend to commercial whims he draws manga that he wants to draw and 
I that that's why I love him so much. He it's his his stuff is unique. That's also a bit of a handicap when it comes to a market that involves localization because the amount of work that needs to be put in to localize a manga is a lot higher than other mediums. Like even anime, like you can you can have like simul subbing of an anime so much easier than it takes to do like manga because you can you have to deal with lettering and, and redrawing and things. So and printing. So it's it's a work intensive medium. But he he said that yeah, definitely just make your voices heard and speak up to it. Talk with the publishers. Also then he all, he went on to say, yeah, and call call your local representatives and call the White House. That would help out. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about it was that he, like since he was speaking in Japanese, no one like the, there was actually there were quite a few people in the audience who spoke Japanese, and they they were able to like laugh and react to to things in real time before the the interpreter got around to it. But we were just hearing him talking in Japanese for for thirty seconds or so, and then we hear White House, <laughs> <laughs> like before anyone even like we're like, like we're, how can this possibly play into what he's saying? <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So like like and I I say that with all sincerity, man. We, if you love Urasawa, please talk with publishers and, and like make it known that we want to read his works here. Please convince them to, that we want Billy back. We are long overdue for Billy back. Kodansha USA, you have the opportunity to publish the greatest manga of the 21st century, in, in my opinion. But, 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 but you have that opportunity. Please don't pass it up. Yeah, start tweeting at Kodansha. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, I'm sure they'll hopefully listen. Oh man, I, I can't imagine that it is a cheap series to license. I, it, it like Urasawa has to be one of the more pricey mangaka to, to license work from. I, I definitely mm. understand that. So that's that's a sticking point. And so Viz would not be able to license Billy Bat like they have his other series because it's it's a Kodansha owned property. It's the one series that he did outside of Shogaku Khan. So that, that's a bit of a barrier because, like, other series that Viz would have the opportunity to license easily, such as uh, Yawara or Happy, those are series that would be tough sells for the American market. Whereas Billy Bad is a really easy sell. It's it's his thriller kind kind of format, which is what sold well enough that they've done a second entire release of Monster and Twentieth Century Boys. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, hopefully those sell well enough to where maybe they'll I don't know maybe maybe somebody will. Uh, be convinced in publishing actual newer English works over here. I don't know. Maybe one day. Yeah. But then, finally, to wrap up the event, this is what uh, I'd hope, been hoping for. Naoki Urasawa went over and picked up a guitar. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because he is, on top of being uh, an unbelievably talented uh, artist, he's also a, a musician. Oh, and one of the things that, that uh, Frederick Schott had like mentioned when I spoke with him like, like briefly, but also at the beginning of the event, was Naoki Urasawa is proof that God does not distribute talent equally. <laughs> 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 and, oh my gosh. So, uh, for those who aren't aware, the song uh, in the manga 20th Century Boys... There's the song 20th Century Boy by the band T-Rex that plays a big part in the story, but also the main character Kenji writes his own song that he titles Bob Lennon, because it's a shameless ripoff of Bob Dylan and John Lennon. Mm. And 
Urasawa even bundled a single of that song written and sung by himself with one of the volumes of 20th Century Boys in Japan. Ah, mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Um, he's released two full studio albums already and has announced that a third will be coming sometime this year. So he goes up there and he sang a new song that he had never sung before, like never recorded before, called Red Berries that will hopefully be on his upcoming third album. And like he started singing that and playing it and then set down his guitar and there was a loop playing of a repeated riff from the song, went over and drew an image live of like an angel standing in the forest with snow and red berries and a, a fat bird and drew that and then went back to singing the song. Oh and my god. It like like and the interpreter also read like spoken word translations of the of the lyrics of it and it it's it was wonderful. That sounds amazing. But then following that I I think it was safe to say that many people in the audience they were hoping for Bob Lennon and he <laughs> did not disappoint. He goes up there and he mentions so so this is Kenji's song, and I, I know you've all, you, you've been waiting for it. And towards the end of the of the song, there, there's a repeated segment where where it goes "guta la la su da la la," and I want you all to sing along with that. So he he goes up there, and very similar to what he had done with the the Red Berries song, he he starts playing the song on, on his guitar and does does a repeated riff, goes into that, and then it plays a recorded loop. And then he went over and drew a picture of Kenji and wrote, thank you, L.A., and went back to it and sang the song. And we got to the, the, the final portion where it was the repeated gutalala, sudalala portion. And the entire room was singing along and it was a magical event. <laughs> that's am- that's just wonderful. Oh, my God. Like, what an experience. Wow. Yeah. And like. I, I, myself, I actually, I purchased a CD of that not long ago where, uh, Urasawa put out a CD where it was the original song 20th Century Boy by T-Rex, then his recording of Bob Lennon, and a third song, which was a club remix of 20th Century Boy that is not very great. (laughs) But the, the cover of the album is a piece that he drew himself where it's a riff on the, the album Revolver by the Beatles. So it's got the black and white like collage of faces, but rather than being the four Beatles, it's Urasawa himself, Kenji, and Mark Bolin from T-Rex, repeated over and over again. And I have listened to that CD on repeat in my car for months now, and it's it was just... I don't even know the lyrics of the song and what they mean, but I can sure sing along with them because it, oh man, it was so great. Wow. I'm going to have to look for those CD. I had, I had no idea he was a musician at all. I learned something new today. It's insane that he has time to record music and put out albums while drawing manga. Like he is incredibly talented. He did mention that during his work process, he does keep a guitar right next to his desk. So he'll, if a, a song idea pops into his head, he will just bounce right over and uh, like, like start strumming it and play it and record it on his phone, and then <laughs> then go back to drawing manga when he's done. Wow, that's a really good idea. When he's getting kind of tired on one of his creative aspects, he can transition into another and mess around with that for a little bit before uh, going back. So that's actually really smart. Yeah, he also he also said that every month he 
plays a show in Tokyo that's about two hours long where he just goes and plays guitar. Oh my god, he's doing monthly shows in addition to making albums and drawing my well, how does he have time for this oh my that god was... i was i was just about to say i wonder if he does live shows like um like takeshi konomi from uh, prince of tennis <laughs> <laughs> what one of my my dad's takeaways from that when we were like walking after the event was man so so is he married and i said i don't i don't think so i don't i have never heard anything about that and then he said yeah like he seems like such a workaholic he does like there's there's no way that he ever stops working. He is someone who has been drawing manga for close to forty years now and just keeps keeps on going, never stops, and has an enormous work ethic for it, and is a bit of a perfectionist. And yeah, it seems on one hand it seems a little bit I don't I don't want to say sad, because he certainly seems like a very happy, fulfilled person. Just you'd be worried it's like I don't know that he has a whole lot of time for, for friends or family or, or, or things, but he's also had such an impact on so many millions of people. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I mean, as, as long as he's happy doing what he's doing, you know. Yeah. It seems like Urasawa is living his dream. He's like successful in all the areas he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Like, to sum it up, I can't express enough how much of an impact he's had on my life. He's created works of art that have just just changed me as a person. I think one of the things that I have always found within his works is an underlying sense of optimism. And that's something that, that I think people could argue, but I, I won't have my mind changed on that because there is such a, a strong sense of empathy and compassion for other people and trying to figure out not just that there are people who are evil and want to hurt people, which he's got a very strong understanding of what modern evil is. He gets to it. But he he wants to show that there is good within people and that there there's reasons behind all of these things and there's reasons to hope. Master Keaton is an episodic series that nearly every single chapter in the, the full like 18 original volumes is its own story. And within each of those 24 pages, he can show how you can create empathy for a character and even in tragedy find beauty and hope and that's that's something that i really appreciate i do too Urasawa is just an amazing artist and i'm so glad that you were able to see him live in person and get to have such a wonderful experience at this event yeah i mean i was um i, I was i was kind of following your trip a little bit on twitter and honestly like th- this event just sounds so like I mean, not, not not that it didn't seem like fun, you know, from what you were posting about it, but it just, I I just I just wasn't expecting some of the things you were coming on to talk about. Like it, it just seems like you got so much more out of it than uh, than 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 what you were like posting on Twitter. Yeah, I I'm not great about keeping things updated super fast, so I, I was in the moment a lot. There, were, I mean, I met some really great people there. It was it was actually very funny. Um, one of the people that I was talking to mentioned that he he's like, oh man, I, I actually have a, an animation cell from Yawara. Wow. And I was like, oh, that is that oh is so gosh. awesome. Like, uh, and I mentioned how like last year I, I bought an animation cell from Gundam Eighth MS Team, which is my favorite Gundam series. And I said, yeah, I, I got this. I got this. Uh, this Gundam Eighth MS Team animation cell from a from a cell dealer in the Midwest at a convention. And he he looks at me. He's like, wait, Midwest? <laughs> What's it, Kurt? 
And sure enough, we bought our cells from the same dealer who goes to all of these same Midwestern conventions. <laughs> wow. wow. We, and we bought it at the same convention, uh, NakaCon in Kansas City. Mm. Small world. It wow. was, and yeah, the guy had lived in, it lived in the Midwest and moved out to California a few years ago. So it's like, wow, I cannot believe we both know Kurt, the, the anime cell <laughs> dealer. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty neat. I like coincidentally at that convention where I had gotten the Gundam cell, I had asked him, Hey, do you have, do you have any cells from Yawara? And he's like, Oh no, we don't get those very often. People don't buy them. And I'm like, I would, I would buy them. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> um no but it 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 sounds like you had an amazing time and i am incredibly jealous well hey if you want to meet another mangaka junji ito has been announced as a, a attending for the crunchyroll convention later this year that's true yeah, that's true that's true oh man uh but I'm, I'm really glad you were able to come on and um and talk about this with us i i feel like i learned a lot about uh urasawa so yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad to be able to to talk about it. Like it, it means so much to me, and I I really enjoy sharing things like that. Well, I guess whenever we actually get around to talking about any Urasawa manga, we know who to call now. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I would I would absolutely love to to join in on any discussion. I love I love his manga so much. Got a Pluto anime coming out next year, hopefully. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes, I forgot that's about gonna that. Be great. Hopefully. But no, yeah. Um, thank thank you so much for coming on, Aiden. This was this this was a really fun chat. Glad to be here. Um, and I guess uh, you know where where can the people find you? I I know you're on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Koi Boy B Boy. It's like Cowboy Bebop, but misspelled. So <laughs> yeah, that's where you can find me. C O Y B O Y. So you know that that's wacky. That's 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 quirky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I think I think we mentioned on the on a previous episode um that uh you know if you're in the los angeles area and uh you have a chance to go see the exhibit it's at the uh, japan house and um i think the exhibit is running like we said until march 28th yeah and there'll be some other events in the coming weeks there's like this character drawing for kids event on february 2nd and march 2nd uh there's elements of character designs and for manga and comics on february 2nd and march 2nd compositions and panel layouts uh koma wari for manga and comics on february 9th and kara and kara Kutcher, your caricature is a manga character on february 9th so uh keep an eye out for on those dates to attend those events as well i guess uh yeah i mean i'm i'm sure we'll 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 have this episode up like way before the event's over so you should have plenty of time to maybe plan a trip uh just in case you're interested in uh going to see it and i want to maybe make a trip out that it's before it leaves los angeles unless i plan to go to london which is where it'll travel to next but yeah it sounds like an amazing collection of urasawa's artwork and i want to see like some of the chapters of his work that they are displaying on there. I mean, unfortunately, just speaking for myself, I know I probably won't really get to go see this event anytime soon because uh, of time and money. But so I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could have Aiden on so I could kind of live vicariously through him. Thanks once again to Aiden for coming on the show and sharing his experiences attending the Arasawa exhibition in Los Angeles. It was incredible to hear 
everything that was there and hear about how the Urasawa signing and his live presentation went. I'm just floored. It sounds like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And I hope we hope we can have him on the show again to talk about more Urasawa manga. At some point, yeah. But we are going to wrap up the show now with some community shout-outs. The first one I have here is a piece from the blog Jackson P. Brown uh, called Tots on the Promised Neverland and Black Women in Manga. Recently, because Crone has appeared in the Promised Neverland anime, there's been a lot of discussion of how black women are depicted in anime, not just in Promised Neverland, and just in anime manga in general, how black characters are depicted. And this is a very thoughtful piece that kind of explores the writer's feelings on how Sister Crone is depicted, is specifically how she's depicted in contrast to characters that are presented or coded as white, and drawing a very interesting contrast to the ways in which the series presents Crone as menacing and the ways it presents Isabella as menacing, and explaining how the manga's presentation of Crone draws upon very uncomfortable uh, stereotypes and very uncomfortable portrayals of black characters and uh, black women specifically, in which like they are made more masculine in comparison to like white characters, and like their femininity is downplayed, and they're just not tr- given the same level of treatment uh, in their depictions. So I thought this was a very well-written article that draws upon a lot of great examples to show how why it's important to have good representation and how it's important to depict characters responsibly without drawing upon these very detrimental stereotypes and tropes that dehumanize and uh, present black characters as other or not as human as a... Uh, you know, white characters or characters of other ethnicities. And I thought that was a very important point to make. And this article is incredibly well written. And I think you should check it out because I think it's like one of the best takes on this conversation that I've read. And then I want to share a video made by our good friend Wensley Dale Cheddar, which is not expressly anime and manga related, but it does tie into it. He's made a video explaining phonetics, using, uh, kind of introducing this concept of the international phonetic alphabet and the ways in which how different letters can be pronounced and kind of like how the structure of language works. And so in this first video, he's kind of going over vowels and the different ways vowels can be pronounced based on like the IPA, like, guide of like different ways like you could pronounce the different words and it's very informative because you can apply this to like when you're having conversations about how could you should pronounce manga should you pronounce it manga should you pronounce it manga like Wednesday that kind of explains through this video that you know based on how the Japanese you know how it's written in Japanese like you both interpretations are actually valid so there's a lot of interesting things you can learn here from this video in terms of like how you can study like the language and the way we pronounce words and how we represent different sounds with letters and how that changes depending on the context and of how of how letters are used and stuff and the different sounds people make and how that difference between 
differs between language uh, lines and cultural lines. So I thought it's a very important video. I'm hoping I'm looking forward to more like uh, videos on the subject from Winsleydale because it's a subject that I don't know much about, but I think it's like incredibly informative and interesting to think about. So want to share both of those pieces? Uh, definitely give Winsleydale's video a watch and give Jackson P. Brown's uh, a blog post to read. Hmm, we'll definitely have links to those in the show notes for anyone who wants to check those out. Mm-hmm. But I think that does it for the show, and now it's just time to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I guess, um, uh, Lom, you can go first. Uh, where can the people find you? You can find me at Lomramayasha on Twitter, and you can find me as Lomramayasha on various places, including Animation Revelation and AnyList. You can also check out my writing on all-comma.com. I do manga reviews and anime reviews over there. I recently put out my review of Dragon Ball Super Broly, so you can go check that out if you not have not read it yet. And for future theatrical anime releases in the U.S., I intend to write reviews of them as well. So look forward to reviews of films such as I Want to Eat Your Pancreas and Battle Angel Lita in the coming month. All right. And uh, yeah, definitely go check out all Lum's stuff, especially uh, his uh, review of Dragon Ball Super Broly. Uh, I thought it was a very well-written review. Thank you. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. Um, I also do a few other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Intama Manga Cast, over at GetToLifeLessons.wordpress.com. Uh, basically, if you're a fan of Gintama and uh, you want to hear my thoughts about the manga, check it out. Even though we are on a indefinite hiatus at the moment, we still have a huge backlog of episodes you can listen to, again, at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com. You can also listen to One Podcast Prevails at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Basically, a podcast that I record with my friend Doctor over from the Ass Backwards Anime Podcast, uh, where we talk about the Detective Conan slash Case Closed manga coming out from Viz. Um, so yeah, please go listen to that. I'm, I love Conan. I love recording that show. So if you're a fan of Conan as well, uh, you'll definitely want to check that out again. That's at onepodcastprevails.com. But, uh, you know, as for all comic and the podcast, uh, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. You can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks, as well as MangaMavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel over at YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks, uh, where we post uh, different excerpts of the podcast, such as news pieces, uh, you know, whatever reviews we talk about and whatnot, um, even some bonus content every once in a while. So please... Uh, again, subscribe over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. You can also listen to our podcast over at Spotify. Uh, so uh, please definitely go check out the podcast there. Email us anything uh, about the podcast, whatever manga you're reading. Um, what did you think about uh, listening about the uh, Naoki Urasawa exhibition? Uh, do you want to see Aiden come back on the show? Um, email us anything about whatever and uh we'll read them and you can send us those emails at manga mavericks at gmail.com but the most important thing guys is that you subscribe rate and review us on apple podcast uh that really helps the visibility of our podcast in general uh so we would appreciate that if you uh if you have the time to do so 
But uh, I think that's going to be about it for the podcast. Uh, again, special thanks to Aiden, otherwise known as Koi Boy B Boy on Twitter, for coming on. And uh, this has been episode 75 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 76. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.